Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Our scripture reading this evening is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And God's word says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, good evening, church. It's good to see all of you here tonight. I'm glad that um, you're able to be here. I'm glad you prioritized uh, this evening worship service. If uh, you were with us this morning, then uh, you've done the right thing to come back and hear the word again and encourage your brothers and sisters again. If you're here for the first time today, welcome. And uh, may God bless you to give everything you ought to give to the Lord in this service. And I hope that you will also get something back that will encourage you and strengthen you and help you through the week that is ahead. And uh, I know that I always get what I need from the Lord. We're talking about the true religion, working through this as the final series of this, the year of our Lord 2022, as we conclude our thoughts about the fact that we are the body of Christ, the church. And in this series, drawn from Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, we've already talked about the fact that there is one body. We've talked about the fact that there is one spirit. This morning we talked about the fact that there is one hope, only one hope. And so tonight we're talking about the Lord himself. There is only one Lord. I just want to get us to thinking tonight and and thinking about the question of who Jesus is. And brothers and sisters, this is the central question of the whole of this world. And the evidence uh, that answers that question of who Jesus did is everywhere all around us constantly. It is everywhere all around us constantly. The answer to the question of who Jesus is. There, of course, is an enemy that seeks to get people off track, to get them distracted, to see to it that they don't think about the plain evidence that is all around them from every place. But we ask about, you know, who Jesus is. Uh, What is he like? Does Jesus have a good sense of humor? I look through just uh, for the fun of it. Um, uh, on, online, just, you know, uh, looked up Jesus and wanted to see what kind of pictures of Jesus might be out there. Uh, the one you see on the screen, who knows what Jesus looked like. I'll tell you what I did to make that picture, to be honest with you. I, I just found what is one of the most popular pictures of Jesus, which happens to have kind of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. And I found a version of that that was black Jesus, and I just took both of them, and I I'd made them transparent and laid them on top of each other. So that's White and black Jesus right there for you. What does Jesus actually look like? I don't know. None of us know. What does a Jew look like? Look that up and see what a Jew looks like. Physically speaking, we don't know what he looked like. Was Jesus light-skinned with blue eyes and blonde hair? You know, when he comes back again, if that's what it looks like, we're going to see. Is Jesus dark-skinned? You know, I, I mean, is that what Jesus... I don't know, nor do I care. And that's not what I mean when I ask these questions about what Jesus is like. Whatever Jesus looked like... 
He will look like a glorified version. He already looks like a glorified version of that. And when he comes back again, we'll see him. And I'll tell you, regardless of what Jesus looks like, I'm going to bow down before him and worship him because that's my Lord. And that's the way that we all should be. All right? Some people focus on all the wrong things when they think about Jesus. But, but uh, of course, there are, there's party Jesus out there. If you look in the pictures online, you know, got the Jesus winking at you with the pointy fingers. You may have seen that picture. If you haven't, look it up. You'll find it. Okay, party Jesus is a great idea. I'm afraid people probably misuse that particular image of Jesus, but that's neither here nor there. And, and of course, you've got the, uh, the old Renaissance type, you know, uh, just mourning Jesus with the halo on his head and all that sort of stuff. But all of these diverse images of Jesus uh, just represent the dialogue about Jesus, which is also very diverse. And some of it is good diversity, good discussion, just thinking and imagining and wondering what Jesus is like. And some of it is nothing at all like that. Some of it is the wrong kind of discussion to be had. But I'm glad people are talking about Jesus. And ever since Jesus' birth, there has never been a time on this planet when people have not been talking about Jesus. Right? And it remains true today. Jesus is the single most controversial figure in the world today. And that's been true in every century back to the first century. And in fact, even before the first century, the Jews, the rabbis, were constantly debating about every passage in the Old Testament that they knew to be a messianic prophecy and wondering what is this saying about who the Messiah is going to be and what the Messiah is going to be like. So what's the truth about him? That's a question that we as Christians certainly need to be able to answer, at least in a practical way. None of us know everything there is to know about Jesus, and someday I hope we will, but we certainly do need to make sure that we know Jesus that we know him well, and that we know him accurately. And of course, the Bible is going to be the only place where we're going to find the actual objective answers to the question, what is Jesus like? There's a song that's not new. I don't know if it's 15 years old or what, but it's by the contemporary Christian group Mercy Me. And I don't listen to a lot of contemporary Christian mu music, but I like the idea of it. But there's this song that I've heard many times over the years that really, really I love. Uh, because I think it speaks to the heart of true believers as we think about the second coming of Christ. Do you think about it? Do you think about when Christ comes again? And this morning, talking about hope, the one hope, I read from Matthew 25, the Judgment Day passages. And the Bible tells us in a number of places that when Jesus comes back, he is going to assemble all of us before him. A moment in your eternal existence will arrive. Brothers and sisters, listen and think about it, okay? A moment in your eternal existence will arrive, just as sure as this moment arrived, a moment will arrive when you alone, with nobody else, it'll be your turn, and you will be right there in front of the throne of Jesus. And what is that going to be like? I'm not much of a dancer. It's not in my genes. It's not in my raising. You know, I was raised up in the churches of Christ, and we don't believe in dancing, right? Right? Well, you know, I'm laughing a little bit, but I mean, if y'all have roots in the church, you know what I'm talking about, and this ain't a lesson about dancing. There are certain kinds of it that we shouldn't have anything to do with it, uh, but when you see Jesus, would you dance for joy? Would there be anything wrong with that? No, of course not. I, I tend to think, you know, thinking about the words of that song, that I'm more the, 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 the be in awe of his presence and fall down and worship him. That's, that's how I imagine that I will be, but I can only imagine. And that's the message of this song. Jesus is so near 
and yet he is so far, depending upon how you're thinking. Jesus has been taken away from our sight into heaven. He is no longer physically in our presence, and yet if we are true believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus, then Jesus is within us through the Holy Spirit and close to us in every way and ought to be the primary subject of our meditations. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be dreaming about Jesus every single day of our lives. And he ought to be everything to us and everything for us. But the question I'm really getting at tonight is who is he to the world? Who is he to you as a person who has been bought out of the world and brought into Christ if indeed you are in Christ tonight? Is Jesus your Savior? I think it's easy for lots of folks in the world to think of Jesus as a Savior, both folks within the church and and outside the church and those that think they're in the church. It's easy for people to think of Jesus as this Savior, maybe as their friend. Do you have a friend in Jesus? I think a lot of people find it easy to say, I have a friend in Jesus. Certainly even folks in the world that don't believe in the gospel at all will many times say, well, Jesus was a great teacher. And that's the way that they want to leave it. They want to put him on par with what they believe are other great religious teachers in the history of the world. Let me just put it bluntly. There are no other great religious teachers in the world outside of the history of Israel and of the church. There are none. There are folks that were very influential, but if they're not teaching the truth, they're not great teachers. End of the story. And so there's nothing great about any of the world's religion's founders. Only Jesus Only the prophets that led to Jesus. Only the apostles and prophets that came from Jesus. Those are the only great religious teachers the world has ever seen. And so some of these ways that people think about Jesus, look at Jesus, you know, are are respectful and are going in the right direction. And some of them are not. Some of them are far from it. And of course, there are many people in the world, I'm sad to say, that treat Jesus as an outright enemy. He is their enemy because they despise Jesus what he stands for. And that's the world that we live in today, divided about Jesus. It was true in his day while he was fulfilling his earthly ministry, and it remains to be true today. The question really of tonight, though, is, is Jesus your Lord? And there's a great difference between saying, Jesus is my Savior and my friend. Man, I've got a friend in Jesus. And saying, Jesus is my Lord and my Master and my King and my Ruler and my Owner. And the one who directs my life, the one who has the authority, that I I submit to his authority in every way, there's a great difference between those two. But if you understand Jesus as the Word of God reveals him to us, as he is in truth, then he is your Savior, he is your friend, he is the great teacher, certainly not your enemy, and he is your Lord and your King. And so our passage, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one body that is the church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who temples within the church. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, the hope of being raised up in the final day to, to, be, uh, to be celebrated in glory with Jesus and to live with him eternally. That's the hope that we have. And then the Bible tells us here in this passage that there is one Lord. There is one faith, Lord willing, that's next week. One baptism, Lord willing, next week. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. These are the seven ones of true religion. And in the first week talking about this series, I talked about the fact that the Trinity is taught in this passage. You have the Spirit, you have the Lord, which refers to Christ, to Jesus, and you have God the Father. And so believing in the doctrine of Trinity is absolutely fundamental to the faith. But let's think about that word Lord. The word Lord 
as we read it in our New Testaments today in our English Bibles, is a translation of the Greek word kurios, kurios. And some of the impact that that word had in the first century world is often lost to us today in the 21st century because the word Lord has become so diverse in our world. And it's a very diverse word. But, uh, but there's more than one word for Lord, more than one way to talk about who Jesus is. But the word kurios was a word that had some very specific meanings in the first century world. And there's a very great claim that is being made by Jesus himself, by his apostles, and by the New Testament in choosing to, to use that word kurios that we translate Lord. I want to just uh, read uh, what we find from the outline of biblical usage of that word Lord. This is what the word means as we read about it in the New Testament in various contexts. It is he to whom a person or thing belongs. He to whom a person or thing belongs. Uh, you belong to Jesus. You are his property. You are, in fact, his slave, and he is your master. And it doesn't matter whether that is politically correct or not, or whether that brings up painful feelings about America's rotten history on that subject. All of that stuff is in our background. But it does not change the fact that Jesus is our Lord and Master. And He owns us. We're bought with a price, the price of His blood. We belong to Him and we owe Him our allegiance. Now let me tell you this. Slavery as it was done in these United States and in Western civilization in general was a really rotten, terrible, sinful system based upon some really rotten prejudices. But brothers and sisters, the theology of slavery we read about in the Bible is not what they were doing at all. American slavery was not following the teachings about slavery as it existed in the ancient world that the Bible teaches us about. And brothers and sisters, I want to say with all boldness tonight that the doctrine of slavery in Scripture is a beautiful teaching. It is a beautiful doctrine. Jesus himself, when he came to earth, came in the form of a doulos in Greek, bond servant. Jesus the Lord came to earth to live the life of a slave to his heavenly Father. That's what Jesus came to be. You see, the way that the Bible has dealt with slavery in every civilization into which it has come, the Bible is what has done away with sinful slavery in every society that has embraced it. And I can say in the world boldly today that the only societies that still celebrate and practice slavery are those that are non-Christian societies, especially Muslim societies that still celebrate and practice slavery in the world today. It is the New Testament's teachings that has brought that practice to an end because it changes the way that people think of slavery and look at slaves. Jesus did not come to politically end slavery in some kind of violent rebellion. He just said, oh, is slavery the lowest thing a person can be? Is that the lowest caste that someone can be a part of, the lowest socioeconomic? Okay, that's what I'm going to come and be. And in so doing, he just turned society that was upside down, right side up. And so, listen, brothers and sisters, embrace the truth. And do not let any baggage from your cultural mishandling of things mar what the New Testament teaches about this beautiful relationship. Under the Old Testament system, when slavery was allowed in ancient Israel, there was an end to it. There was a year of jubilee, a time of freedom when they would be set free and given property and those sorts of things. But, but there was a, an opportunity for those that, that had found themselves enslaved to a master that they loved, whose house that they loved. 
And they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to be set free. They wanted to lovingly serve that household. And so if you've ever sang the song, Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day. It's simply drawing from the law of Moses where the servant would say, this is where I belong, this is where I want to stay. And so uh, they would be taken to the doorpost of the house and in what kind of might seem painful, but, you know, people do it every day. Their ear would be pierced against the doorpost of the house. And the symbolism is, I am nailing myself to this household. Now, of course, they'd pull the nail out and put an earring in it. You know, but that was the symbolism. Uh, I'm going to be nailed to this house. Brothers and sisters, I am proudly Jesus' slave. Proudly. And my ear has been nailed to the doorpost of his house. That's the way I want it. That's the way I like it. That's the way it's going to be. Because I'll tell you, if you're a human being, you will serve some master or another. You simply get to choose which one you'll serve. I choose to serve the one who is worthy of my service, Jesus my Lord. So he is the one to whom a person or thing belongs. Uh, He has the power of deciding. He's master. He's Lord. He's the possessor and disposer of a thing, the owner, the one who has control of the person, the master in the state. He is the sovereign, the prince, the chief. Here's where it became controversial in the first century because the Roman emperor was the one they called kurios. When Jesus came as kurios, it was a direct, blatant, and open claim to authority over the Roman emperor himself. Someone who the Romans regarded as a slave had the audacity to say, I am the actual emperor of the universe. That's the claim Jesus made. That's the claim he proved in conquering death and being raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father. It is a title of honor expressive of respect and reverence with which servants greet their master. And this title is given in the Scripture only justly to God the Father and Jesus the Messiah, God's Son. That's what the word Lord means in reference to God the Father and to Jesus the Son in the New Testament. And we, brothers and sisters, ought to rejoice in that and embrace it. The truth here is that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 3, this is one of Paul's, not the only, but one of Paul's uh, teachings to help the church that, of course, in that time was functioning during the ongoing ministry of prophecy. And so, in a worship service, as we read about in 1 Corinthians 14, talked about that chapter in our previous series on the church at worship. Uh, but uh, in, in a worship service in the first century church during the apostolic era, there would be prophets, folks who had been gifted with words from God that would come into the assembly and, and want to share those words. And they were being taught to test the spirits to see whether they were from God because false prophets had gone out into the world, people with messages that did not come from God. And one of the tests that Paul gives there in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 is that any, any spirit that that uh, does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is not from God. In our world today, you cannot teach anything that is favorable toward Christianity without saying that Jesus is Lord. And this is one of the problems with some of the Muslims that try to you know, sort of worm their way into the minds of weak Christians and try to draw them away from the faith. They'll say, oh yeah, as Muslims, we celebrate Isa. 
We celebrate Jesus as this great prophet, just like you Christians do. We celebrate Jesus. And, and so unsuspecting Christians are, are, are sometimes drawn away into thinking, oh, well, you know, there are certain aspects of Islam that I, that I, I like, and, and I, I, I kind of really appreciate some of the teachings that are given. And, and they respect Jesus, so I guess I can go this way. But I will tell you what you will never hear a Muslim say. Jesus Christ is Lord because they don't believe it because they follow a false prophet. You see, Paul gave us the test in the midst of the first century, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Folks in the Middle East, when Muhammad began to teach and preach and say that he'd received this revelation from the angel Gabriel, all that they would have had to do if they had been biblically uh, literate at all is to say, what do you say about Jesus? Is Jesus Lord? And they'd have known this is a false prophet. Don't follow his teachings. But brothers and sisters, this has got to be personal. I've already said I'm Jesus' slave, and I'm very happy and proud to be. I'm not the least bit ashamed of saying so, nor should you be. Jesus is the Lord, and that's an objective truth. I hope you're following what I'm saying here, because we're just talking about objective reality right now. We're talking about what actually is the case in the real universe that actually exists. This is not some kind of religious fairy tale, some kind of puffed up legend. It's not just, well, this truth resonates with us and so this is our truth and if you don't believe it, you can have your own truth and all things will be equal. That's not what we're saying at all. When we're saying Jesus is Lord, we're talking about the reality of this universe. Just as the earth rotates around the sun or revolves around the sun, that's just an objective scientific fact. It's just an observation of reality. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is on the throne of his glorious kingdom, seated at the right hand of the one true and living God. That's a statement about reality. It's just as scientific as saying seed produces after its kind. It's just a true observation of what happens to actually be the case in the universe that exists seen and unseen. So saying Jesus is Lord is one thing. It's just a statement of fact. But accepting what that means for me, that's where the rubber meets the road. And as we wrestle with the questions about the Lordship of Christ, that's the question we have to wrestle with in our own hearts. Is Jesus my Lord? Brothers and sisters, I'll tell you this. For what it's worth, I'm just a man and I know that's the case. I do my best to preach the Word of God in truth for you. Ultimately, for my Lord Jesus, every time I stand in this pulpit, I can tell you for whatever failings I've got, Jesus is my Lord. He's my Lord. He's my Lord. He is my Lord. The question is, is he yours? And that's the question that you have to answer. Brothers and sisters, you know, we've got our ideas in modern society about what's powerful and about what's privileged all messed up because there's a devil in the details of all that political mess. But brothers and sisters, the only power that there is in this world to actually affect things eternally is not in the political system of deciding who's the best, who's the brightest, who you have to listen to, who's got the connections or power to make things happen. Power is in submission to Jesus Christ the Lord. And a congregation of dirt, poor, half-educated people 
but who know enough to study the Bible and go out into the world saying, I belong to Jesus and he is my Lord. That group of people has more power than all the combined house of representatives and senate and presidents and all of the judges that sit on the benches in this country. The prayers of one congregation of poor, backward people who confess that Jesus is their Lord and mean it and go out into the world to live it are more powerful than the United Nations. Because it's true that Jesus actually is on the throne in heaven at the right hand of God our Father. That's where he is. And he has graciously given us access to God because he's earned it through his perfect life. And beautiful, powerful sacrifice. You see, power, power is given to those who live life on their knees, not on a pedestal. God resists or opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Brothers and sisters, since we're talking about facts, Jesus is his enemy's Lord. He's his enemy's Lord. There have been quite a number of well-known and high-profile atheists that have grown in popularity because of their science television shows and, you know, their published articles in journals and in magazines and their dean positions and head positions at universities and companies across the world who have lived their whole lives opposing everything that Jesus stands for and have lived their lives to the end and died and they died and they fell into the hands of the one they lived their lives hating. And they will stand before him one day and they will recognize as true what they refuse to recognize in life. Because brothers and sisters, Jesus is in fact Lord. He's not just Lord if you receive it. He's not just Lord if you accept it. He's not just Lord if you like it. He's Lord because He's Lord. He is Lord because He is Lord. It's who He is. It's where He belongs. And we need to understand who we are in relationship to Him. He is Lord. I am not. And you are not. And that's exactly the way that it should be. And so this is what Jesus had in mind. It's the truth that he was communicating when he gave the Great Commission to his apostles. Matthew's account, just before he gives the Great Commission, he gives the reason why he's got the right to do it. Verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, Notice, I underline the word all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the truth. Jesus rules the universe. He upholds it by the word of his authority, as Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us. Brothers and sisters, the power that he has, and we need to recognize this, and it will alleviate so many of our fears and worries about what's going on in society and what's going on in politics. You know, we kind of sometimes half respect the truth that the Bible teaches us about the authority of Christ. And we think that, well, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, with their free will, we can't control that. And all of that's true. But if, we, if we'll pray hard enough, Jesus just might just slightly tweak things politically or sociologically or something and, and, and to make them work out in our favor in some better way. And that's just too small a picture of who Jesus is and what he does. 
If we think about what this passage, especially in company with Hebrews chapter 1 teaches, it is Jesus' authority that enables us to continue to exist at all. For my heart to beat is something that Jesus is willing to continue to happen. That's the level of authority that Jesus has. Can I get this point across? Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to do here is to exhaustively get us to understand just what it means that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is God being a man. Seated at the right hand of his Father and ours, he has all power and all authority, and he has access to all knowledge. There's nothing that escapes his attention and nothing that evades his rule. And so when I look at where America's going, yes, of course I'm concerned about things. And yes, God allows people free will. And yes, many people will abuse that and misuse that and give their lives over to sin. But none of that is escaping the notice of my Lord Jesus. And he is going to make it right in the end one way or another. In the meantime, he has got everything under control. And therefore, I don't have to worry about a thing. And I don't worry about a thing. I'll go vote my conscience the best I can, but brothers and sisters, don't think me as irreverent to you know, civics or to patriotism or something. I'm grateful that I live in this country and appreciate it, but I don't care who's president at the end of the day, and I don't care who gets elected to the Senate at the end of the day, and I don't care who's in the House of Representatives at the end of the day, because Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven, and he's my king, and that's my country. That's the Christian mentality, and I will do my best to be a servant of that kingdom in this one. When I've done my best, people can accept it however they want to accept it. And they can put whoever they want to in the Oval Office, but it is not going to change one single thing about where the story of this world is going and about how it's going to end. It won't change a thing. I am not worried about a thing because I know the Lord and He knows me. Let's spend just a minute talking about the problem of disunity because really, second to the issue of salvation itself, it's the greatest problem in our world today. The fact that people are divided and warring against each other, whether we're talking about literally or we're talking about, you know, philosophically or whatever. There are four passages in the book of Judges that I want you to just think about for a second because it says so much about the problem in the human family. We read, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. And if you know that context, there's the false priest Micah that they end up, you know, just it's a mess full of idolatry and, you know, syncretism, blending the truth about God with idolatry. Just a mess because there was nobody to rule to point people in the right direction. Those days when there was no king in Israel, you see that, that statement that keeps coming up in the book of Judges? It keeps coming up because it's significant, because it's the main spiritual point of the book that tells us why there were so many problems in ancient Israel. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, and he came to a city that was uh, inhabited by some really, really wicked Benjaminites. You know how the story went? Well, it's similar to Genesis 19. I'll let you put two and two to get together there and study it for yourself. There was no king in Israel, and so the morals of who should have been the best people in the world were absolutely, completely devoid 
they were non-existent, just wickedness at the deepest levels. In those days, 21, 25, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the problem of this world is that so many people live without a king. Human beings were not meant to live without a king. The problem in this world is so many people give their allegiance to different lords, most of which are lords of their own making, just idols, just facades that enable people really to just live the way that they want to live, thinking that they won't have to give an account before the one who actually truly is king. And what we see taking place in America today and in Western civilization and all over the world is everyone doing what seems right in his own eyes. And that idea has become so just indoctrinated and spread throughout this culture today that people celebrate that as if it is some kind of, of moral thing to celebrate, that everyone is living out their own truth. You just don't let anybody tell you right from wrong. Don't let anybody judge you ever. Don't let anybody judge you. You live your truth. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Read the book of Judges. Tell me if that's the way you want to live. It's not the way I want to live. It's not the kind of country I want to live in. You need a king. You need a king. You need the true king. Jesus is God's answer to the world's problem of disunity. The only thing that needs to happen is that the world just needs to accept that there is a king and they should obey him and they should serve him faithfully but he's going to have to be the church's answer to this unity before the world is really going to pay an awful lot of attention now brothers and sisters I think the Lord has blessed us in this congregation but Christianity across the world is as divided as any other kind of philosophy you will find. And it all comes down, really, to the question of strict obedience. Are you willing to be a Bible people or not? That's the question. It's not about perfection. It's not about working your way to heaven. It's just about accepting that Jesus is actually king saying to ourselves and among ourselves and to the world, because he is king, we'll bow the knee and we'll do what he says, strictly, both in the spirit and to the letter of the law, to the best of our ability so help us God. And if everyone on the whole earth would agree to that, there would be no significant disunity in humanity. Brothers and sisters, it is our aim even though I believe that disunity and division will still be with us until the day Christ comes again, which could be today or a thousand years from now, we don't know. But it doesn't change the fact that our job is to spread the word of the king and to preach to every single man, woman, and child that they owe their allegiance to him, regardless of who listens or who doesn't. It doesn't change anything about him. He's still the Lord. You can't shrug that off. Or dismiss that, and it'd be okay. You will still one day stand before his throne. I want to end tonight by reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Would you read along with me? 
The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and of course there are all of these things, rhetorical questions, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, let this mind be in you who was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Do you hear that? But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, of a slave, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Listen now to verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. Kings, lords, presidents, council members, senators, judges, wealthy company owners, businessmen, peasants and paupers and poor folks alike. Every knee should bow. Not only of those on earth, but those in heaven. The angels bow the knee to Jesus because he is their Lord, their maker, their God, and their king, just as he is ours. And of those on earth and those under the earth, verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Bible truth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord. That's what I preach. I preach it because it's true. Brothers and sisters, the best thing that you can possibly do for yourself, for your family, for this world is to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and accept the rule of Jesus Christ because he is your rightful king. He has earned his place in your heart. He has earned your love, not just your fealty, but your love. Man, it is great to have a king that is so worthy of loyalty. Living in a world where we have seen countless leaders fall morally, dishonestly, showing that they're using their power selfishly to promote themselves. It is wonderful to serve a king who has never done a selfish thing in his eternal existence, nor ever will. I'll serve him if it costs me my life. And I hope that you will too. This evening, you may need to begin that journey of faith, of loyalty to Jesus by obeying the gospel. And this evening, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, it is through the name of King Jesus that our God and Father will hear that prayer. The front pews are open. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.